Welcome to Power Surge. This is Alex Epstein, joined by Stefan Hutton. Stefan, are you there? Yes. Hello, everyone. All right. Let's go quickly through three uh, stories. So uh, first one, there was a hearing before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Science, Space, and Technology called, quote-unquote, examining the U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Process, unquote. And that is, that is the IPCC, the, the famous organization that um, every several years brings out a series of reports, particularly something called a summary for policymakers, which is usually treated as an authoritative scientific document uh, and is criticized by many critics, myself included, as, a, as an extremely manipulative and deceptive uh, political document. So there were uh, a couple of people on uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, now, the stipulation you know, the people who hold the hearings usually bring the experts that they are interested in. So it was actually a mixture of people who are supporters of the IPCC opponents and uh, people who are ambivalent. So I'll just read a couple quotes and then uh, we'll, we don't look through the transcript fully, uh, but we will probably have more to say on Monday. But a couple of, of I thought, uh, particularly good quotes. One was from Richard Toll, who's a... Uh, uh, a professor of economics from the University of Sussex, and he's become well known because he uh, withdrew from the last report because he said the executive summary was was misleading. And uh, let's see. Um, well, he talks, for instance, about the ninety-seven percent idea, which I also talk about in my upcoming book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He says, "Quote: The ninety-seven percent estimate is bandied about by basically everybody." I had. A close look at what this study really did. As far as I can see, the estimate just crumbles when you touch it. None of the statements in the papers are supported by the data that's in the paper. The 97% is essentially pulled from thin air. It is not based on any credible research uh, whatsoever. And that is definitely my uh, experience. If you want to do an interesting Google search, Google David Friedman, who's an economist, 97%. There's an interesting discussion of one of the main uh, papers. Uh, one more quote I thought was good for now uh, was um, actually I'll read the whole uh, whole series of quotes by uh, Botkin, um, Daniel Botkin, who is from Santa Barbara, actually not too far away from me. He's a professor emeritus in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, Marine Biology, and I thought uh, he made some points uh, that are similar to points that I, I make a lot because I think are important. He says, I want to stay up front that we've been living through a warming trend driven by a variety of influences. However, it is my view that this is not unusual and contrary to the characterizations by the IPCC and the National Climate Assessment. These environmental changes are not apocalyptic nor irreversible. Um, my biggest concern is that both the reports that both the reports present a number of speculative and sometimes incomplete conclusions embedded in language that gives them more scientific heft than they deserve. The reports are quote unquote scientific sounding rather than based on clearly settled facts or admitting their lack. Established facts about the global environment exist less often in science than laymen usually think. Um, and at the end, he has, change is normal, life on Earth is inherently risky. It always has been. The two reports, however, make it seem that environmental change is apocalyptic and irreversible. It is not. Uh, that's the end of the, the quotation. So even just change is normal, life on Earth is inherently risky. It always has been. That is a, a favorite point of mine. And, and just it's great to hear it made 
uh, particularly by uh, a reputable scientist. Just it's, it's a common sense point, but it's it's never uh, discussed, and it's it's the context for thinking about any of these things. If you think of it as a life on Earth is inherently safe until human beings come around, you're gonna have it's a very uh, distorted view. Stefan, any thoughts on the the hearing or the reporting on it? Yeah, I found it particularly interesting that um, I think none of the uh, witnesses before Congress um, were real, you know, hardcore, quote-unquote, climate deniers, as they often called. They are, you know, like Richard Tall is a, in my view, a sort of a mixed bag. He, for example, he advocates a um, cap-and-trade scheme where he um, advocates some kind of tax on carbon emissions. Um, and yeah, I think Botkin is not, um, a hardcore enemy of the alarmism, or he's an enemy of the alarmism, but he generally buys into the IPCC assessment, I think. So even these scientists that are, or have been involved in the IPCC process and, um, could be considered mainstream. Um, see a problem with the IPCC and how it promotes things. It's many people uh, think that the IPCC is just uh, the scientific authority, uh, and they are just summarizing the scientific evidence that is objective. But that's not actually true. The IPCC is a political body that has a certain agenda that it pushes, and it, um, of course, reviews predominantly the type of science that supports their argument. And um, even, you know, high-ranking scientists that have been working with the IPCC uh, see um, very stark problems with the process the IPCC uses to push the agenda. And this shows in this hearing. Yeah, I hope that going forward, the opposition will become more strident. One thing I worry about is that you know, the IPCC puts out something extremely stridently and then people say, oh, well, it's not, you know, there are methodological problems, but they're not as loud uh, and as they should be. And in part because a lot of these guys don't have a, a strong sense or at least don't indicate a strong sense of the value at stake. It's it's sort of like somebody made a, you know, an overly negative uh, prediction, but that that prediction is not costing us a lot versus that that prediction has an immense cost because it, it translates directly into anti-energy uh, policies. All right, next story in Ohio. This is a this is a um, more of a good news story. There's these renewable energy mandates passed across the uh, across the country where different states have to are, are obligated or make themselves obligated to have certain amounts of solar and wind or biofuels by a given year, which basically means impoverishing themselves uh, progressively. And if in you know, places like California, you get to scary numbers like 33% uh, and above, which really is a problem because you're, you're dealing with, in the case of solar and wind, unreliable energy sources. So the more you scale them, the more of a problem uh, you, you have. They're only really manageable, although not desirable in low quantities. Anyway, uh, so the this is um, yesterday. The Ohio House of Representatives passed a bill that will freeze requirements that utilities gradually increase their use of renewable energy and energy efficiency. 
It rolls back a law passed by a wide majority of the state House and Senate in 2008. Um, state Senate also approved the bill. John Kasich is expected to sign it. So this is, uh, they are stemming the damage early, which I want to contrast to the next story, and then I'll, we'll get Stefan's take. In my home state of California, and particularly uh, a big issue in Southern California where I live, which is that the, this is from Riggs Zone, the State Senate, well, there's good news, which is that the State Senate rejected for the second year in a row um, a moratorium on fracking. But part of the story is that these localities continue to uh, pass advanced moratoria or bans on fracking. So, for example, Beverly Hills, which actually has oil drilling, most people don't know, uh, the county of Santa Cruz. And now usually there are no fracking proposals on the table, but I still find this ominous in the sense of if we can put it as Ohio was preventing something really bad, and what California is doing is it's trying to prevent something really good or many, many uh, areas of California. And the attitude is, hey, there's a new technology that people are saying scary things about. Why not just be on the safe side and not allow it? And so the idea is that, that a new thinking of technology is, is fundamentally dangerous. And you can imagine um, what that would do to any other technology. I mean, if you said, hey, in California, there's, it, there's this new development called the microprocessor, and it turns out that if we can attach our whole lives to it and then we can get our money stolen and uh, our data can be publicized and all these risks, so why why even start it? It's, it's just too, quote-unquote, uh, risky. And we, what we have with fracking is there's a huge risk of, of not using it because the potential value is so, is so large uh, of being able to, to transform previously use, useless underground patches into life-giving energy, and particularly in a state that is uh, economically backward in many ways as California, at least economically struggling as California, uh, it's, it's particularly ominous. But just this, this general anti-technology attitude, technophobia of, hey, there's a new technology, people say bad things, that's enough, let's ban it, it needs to be replaced by an attitude that fears banning good technology. And that links to the Ohio article because the renewable en energy mandates are really a form of banning uh, certain portions of the population or certain portions of their energy use from being fossil fuel uh, energy. So that, that's my take. Ohio is doing something good. They're, they're preventing damage. And uh, California in many, although California is preventing damage in the sense of the fracking ban, but many localities uh, are, are in fact, inviting damage or preventing something good. Stefan, any thoughts on either of these two stories? Um, yeah, I think it's really unfortunate that we first have these uh, mandates in place before people see how bad they really are. I mean, we've seen this on the international stage with with, in, with countries like uh, United Kingdom or Germany or Spain, even Italy, um, that have paddled back their ambitious uh, mandates for renewable energy, for example. Um, and there are massive subsidies, at least a bit. Um, and then, you know, when the taxpayer and the voters see how expensive this actually is, which is often disputed by environmentalists, by the way, they always say, you know, you can save money by installing more windmills. And um, I myself, living in Germany, can attest to the increase in power bills over here. So, um, yeah, it's really unfortunate that people don't see that before. 
they implement such mandates. Um, yeah. And these are, just to jump in, these are very mild compared to what, I mean, they're, they're extreme and, and destructive and backward relative to, to human life and relative to progress. But in terms of what, to go back to the IPCC, what they recommend in terms of 80% reductions, not only not only slowing the growth, but but reversing the growth many times over. Uh, I mean, what, what, what you've seen is that even with small attempts to approximate this, you have uh, you know, consequences that are disastrous enough that people, even in these, by our standard, super liberal European countries, say no more. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that uh, in most cases, uh, countries are stopped for economic reasons in their renewable ventures before the technological problems appear. Like, you know, with a lot of coal power, Germany can afford to have some percentage of renewables on the grid uh, because the coal power can compensate for the volatility and for the cost and so on. Um, but it's before the grid will collapse, it will get so expensive that you cannot justify it. So that's, you know, the power of the price. Well, I don't get the last point. Can you explain that? You said before um, the grid will collapse? Yeah. I mean, if you have something like, you know, 80 to 100% renewable energy, which is predominantly wind and solar in Germany, um, the grid won't be able to take it. You need at least some buffer storage or some other power source that can compensate the uncontrolled input. Like the sun shines and you have input, and if the sun doesn't shine or the clouds cover the sun, then uh, you have almost zero input into the grid. And um, of course, at any given time, uh, the input into the electricity grid needs needs to meet the demand by the consumers. And so, if you have an uncontrolled energy source, one hundred percent of the time, then you will never the two sides will never meet and then you will have a blackout. Right. And I mean, what, what you get here is, so, I mean, it's, it's nice in the sense that they're not, they're not going nearly as far as they say that they want to, uh, or should, I mean, should by, by their standard, but it also has this quality of, of revealing how nihilistic this is because there is no, by their own standard, there's no positive benefit and there's no chance that, that any of this stuff is that they're going to significantly reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions because even even at the low end, even when you're introducing a relatively lower amount of unreliability on the networks, people are are, are rebelling against it. But then it then to just push for it, absent you know instead of plausibly say let's push for some technological revolution or you know push for the revolution that is nuclear or something. That has plausibility. They just they're just content to keep attacking fossil fuels and keep promoting impractical things, and it becomes an end in itself. Just to attack it, and there's no benefit even on on their standard of, or, or it's a trivial benefit uh, on their standard. Um, you know, in the name of or with the consequence of in, inflicting a very significant benefit on a human life standard. Uh, want to jump in with anything there? Um, no, that's pretty much everything to say. I think. All right, so 
that those are our three stories. We'll probably talk more about IPCC on Monday. I want to check out that whole uh, transcript. But everyone, have a good weekend. Stefan, have a good weekend. We'll talk on Monday. Thank you. Bye-bye.